Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in San Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Steph Cotadal is the author of Everything All at Once, a memoir. The memoir chronicles her discovery of the universality of grief and the redemptive power of love through her husband's 84-day lung cancer struggle while on life support. Juxtaposed against the experience of losing her father to lung cancer at the age of 14, Steph explores both the rage and beauty of suffering, offering hope to anyone who has experienced love and loss. A trained interpersonal mediator, Steph has a master's degree in media, peace, and conflict studies, and has worked as an assistant professor in media and peacebuilding. Though she was born and raised in Montreal, Quebec, Steph is a beach nomad at heart and spent most of her pre-motherhood life traveling around Guatemala, Hawaii, Costa Rica, and Brazil. She currently lives with her husband, three daughters, and one fluffy Pomeranian. Welcome, Steph. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss everything all at once. 
Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Oh my gosh. I loved your book so, so much. I don't, I, I could just like have you on here and, and rave about it for half an hour. <laughs> Tell listeners a little bit about your story and, and your whole journey to like writing this memoir and how you wrote about your dad at first and how you wove it all together and, and just how you created this amazing piece of work of art. Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much. That's seriously such a nice compliment coming from you, especially. Um, this book is actually almost 10 years in the making, which is crazy. I started writing it in uh, like 2014. And at the time I was pregnant with our second daughter, Iris. And at the time, my goal was just to write the story of my adolescence, losing my father to lung cancer when I was 14 years old. And I actually called the book, This Is Where you, I Leave You. I finished it in 2019 and it was supposed to be symbolic of me leaving my grief behind. And now I, I kind of laugh at that because one of the hugest things I learned in the past few years from my husband being sick, which is also part of this memoir, is that you never leave grief behind and it it becomes a part of you and it it's a continuous journey. And I wanted to weave that theme um, throughout the whole book. So my my memoir jumps back and forth in time from my adolescence, which is the book I originally wrote, and then to the past few years when my husband was diagnosed with lung cancer, which is the same disease that took my father. <laughs> well, the way that you had us going along with you while well, you tried to figure out what was going on and a search for a diagnosis and treatment and all of that was just so harrowing. Like it literally felt like we were right there with you in the rooms, like while you're experiencing it. Tell me about using writing as a tool to get you through that time. Yeah, I, I wrote throughout my husband's illness. And I also wrote throughout my, my father's illness. I think writing has always been my means of making sense of the world. I'm not a very verbally emotive person. I kind of have a wall up when you meet me in person. And I often don't know how I feel about something until it comes out on the page. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like I'm out of my body and then I write something and I read it and I have this aha moment of that's exactly how I feel. And, um, you know, call it dissociation. I don't know what it is, but so when my husband ribs was in the hospital, he was in the hospital for um, 101 days during COVID. And so I was very isolated. I had to quarantine. I couldn't be with friends with or with family really, other than my mom and my mother-in-law. And so it was a really lonely time. And writing was kind of my lifeline to the rest of the world. And so I started to write kind of in prose and poetry. And I just started putting it on social media. In some way, I think it was a a cry for help of, of, you know, just saying, does anyone understand me? Is anyone there? And it really was met with a lot of love and acceptance. And I think a lot of people, although they weren't going through the same thing, it was it was a generally a feeling of loneliness. And I think that that's what kind of people related to and resonated with people. And and so I wrote, yeah, throughout his illness. And then I started writing the actual memoir in the months after his remission. Oh my gosh. You know, the contrast between Ribs being this like ultra marathoner endurance athlete, and not sure that's probably not the right word to describe extreme athlete. Well, and, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then, you know, what it's like for someone as strong and vibrant and just like 
a body conqueror, right? Like mm-hmm. he conquered the human form to to show that like nobody is protected, no matter how fast or hard you train or run or, you know, illness cannot, you can't escape it, right? You can't avoid any of the stuff, whether it's losing someone you love or being sick yourself or coping with it. I mean, I don't mean this to sound depressing. I mean it like <laughs> to sound like, we are all sort of facing this together and yet we have to go about our daily lives pretending like this threat does not loom constantly. And then what do you do when the background noise sort of becomes the foreground and that's all you can do. And like, this is the book that sort of shows like all of it coming to the fore. Well, well, it's a lesson I sadly learned in my youth too, because my dad, you know, he wasn't at the level that my husband was at in terms of athletics, but he was super fit. He was a professional barefoot skier. He was, you know, he would ski like slalom ski in the winter. He was, he run marathons and did triathlons too. And so I, and then of course he got sick with a non-smoking related lung cancer. And so it was a lesson I had learned in my youth, but I almost came to believe, I think that grief has some kind of lifetime cap and that nothing bad would ever happen to me again because yeah. <laughs> my father had been taken from me. And then, you know, of course that narrative cracked wide open when my husband was diagnosed. And like you said, it's not to be depressing, but if anything, it kind of taught me just to appreciate exactly what I have right now. And mm-hmm. I know it's done the same for my husband who can no longer race, you know, his whole career in life was built around running and movement and now because of the scar tissue on his lungs, he he can't run more than 30 seconds at a time without having to stop and walk. And instead of being bitter about that, he's just come to appreciate more just his ability to be alive and to be here with me and our kids and to be able to move at all. Because some people don't get that luxury at the end of a long illness. So it's really just brought this new gratitude, I think, to our lives. Oh my gosh. You had a moment in the book and I, I hate to like give things away, you know, I think I already did. So <laughs> he survives, he's in remission. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess anybody who like Googles you or him would figure it out, but I actually had not Googled you or him. And I didn't want to know. I like intentionally like kept myself in the dark. Cause I was like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, I don't know. I don't know if he's going to, oh my God, like what is going to happen? But you know, Anyway, not to give things away, but you did have a moment when you thought you were going to lose him and you attribute like your past psychedelics use and, you know, your openness to the universe at large and all of that to literally have the one of the most powerful reading moments I've had. So I can't imagine how powerful it was in real life, right? To have this sort of communication, like soul to soul, where you basically drag him back. Mm. It was unbelievable. Like, tell me more about that moment. And do you think about that moment? And was this like a life-changing thing for you? And what does it mean about the universe as a whole? And like, give me the meaning of life. And that's- <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> I wish I knew. And <laughs> the interesting thing about that chapter that you're referring to is that's the only chapter I wrote that in one sitting in, again, it felt out of body. It felt as though I was, I mean, not to sound woo-woo, but like channeling something And it was the only chapter that the editors didn't touch. There was no edits to that entire chapter. And I think it's not that it's perfectly written, but I think you could feel the emotion that went not only behind the situation, but behind the writing of it and reliving of it for me. 
another interesting thing is when my husband woke up, quote unquote, woke up as one slowly does from a coma. It's not like in the movies where you just open your eyes and you're awake. But he, after a few weeks, he had a similar experience of him coming back. So he said that, you know, he was, I guess, sort of floating in nothingness and then kind of heard my voice and remembered that he had kids, remembered that he had a life and kind of had to find his way back. And we hadn't talked about my side of the experience and it kind of solidified because of course I second guessed myself. Did that really happen? Did we really communicate on this other dimension? And I still have to second guess it because I'm a natural skeptic, but hearing him have that experience, it just kind of reminds me that there's life is so much bigger than the empirical and what's before us. And that's probably another one of the most important lessons I learned in the last few years is to be open to everything and the possibility of everything, because I don't think I would have ever entertained the idea of even a spiritual world before, before his illness. And now I'm, I'm open to all of it, which is a beautiful thing. So you are also dealing with your daughters and your life and like managing them, managing them post all of this happening. How do you feel like, do you have some sort of PTSD and how did you protect your girls from your own stuff Mm. as you went through everything? I guess those are kind of two separate questions, but... (laughs) That it's, it's a really commonly asked question. People are, you know, ask me, how did you do it with your kids? And I don't, I did I didn't do it the right. I don't think there's a right way to do it. I think that when we're, when we're grieving ourselves and we're in tragedy ourselves, we're just doing the best that we can to survive. And then when you put the weight of our children on top of that, it's, it's basically an impossible task, but I was able to recognize the, the, I guess I call it a gift that I had of having been in my children's shoes before with a sick father. And if anything, it, it almost made me grateful for having been through something like that because it allowed me, I think an empathy that a lot of parents don't have when, when they're leading their kids through, you know, a parent illness. And so I was able to almost heal from my father's passing by kind of garnering a new meaning and attributing a new meaning to it. But I did, I broke down. I was, I cried in front of my kids. I was scared in front of my kids. I just kind of offered them all of the human emotion that I was going through. And who knows, maybe in 10 years, they'll blame me for (laughs) for scarring them. I don't know. But I also had my mom and my mother-in-law with me. They lived with me for the whole nine months of his treatment and so I, I didn't do it alone. You know, I, I definitely could not have done that alone because I was at the hospital pretty much all day with him and they were home doing the online school. They were doing the quarantine with them. And so it truly was, you know, like a community rallied around me and our family at that time. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Well, almost at the exact same time that you were dealing with this, my husband's mom did have COVID and got so much damage to her lungs and she was on a ventilator and then we did have to airlift her and she was on an ECMO, but it ultimately didn't work. But like you with the whole, like you have to advocate, you have to do this. Like I had people in my life who I barely knew who came out from like, you know, I knew them, but like the fact that these people took like center stage in the narrative at that particular tiny slice of life is like, bizarre, but okay. Thank you. This random woman I met on one vacation three years ago with my son, who was like, you have to like, stop what you're doing. And if you don't make these calls or you don't fight and, and do all this stuff, this is it, you know? Mm -hmm. And then you said like in the book, like, was I up for that? Like, am I, can I, can I even do that? Like that responsibility is so heavy. Is it really coming down on my ability to make some phone calls and I felt that same sort of, you know, not to put myself in your shit, but just this one particular slice of it. Like if I don't ask in a nice enough voice, if I don't make the right calls, like that's the difference here. And then it did end up working, but it's like, what if I had done that sooner? Like, I, I don't know. I always feel all this responsibility. Cause like, if it's my responsibility to save, doesn't it mean that the whole responsibility would fall on me? Yeah. It's- you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's oh yes, I know exactly what you mean. And well, it's also you don't hear many people who can relate over ECMO. So that alone is pretty wild that you have that experience. But yeah, the responsibility of it, especially when you feel like you're drowning just in your own fear and you know, and sadness. And then on top of that, you now have to step up to this assertive role, which isn't in my nature. I'm a very kind of passive, quiet person. And so, but it was kind of a wake-up call. One of his nurses basically called me and said, if you don't if you're not his voice now that he's sedated, now that he's in the coma, no one is going to fight for him. We're in the midst of a pandemic. You know, they're not taking extra time to care for patients that don't appear to have a chance of survival because at the time it didn't look like he did. And she said, if you don't speak for him, he's going to die here. And that was that was the turning point for me of, am I going to let my kind of passivity be the reason he dies? And because I, I think I would have had she not given me that wake up, wake up call, you know, and so glad that I did. And on the other side of that, you have the responsibility of knowing that all the things that they're being put through, all the things that my husband was being put through, you know, surgeries and medication and chemo, all while he was completely unaware of his diagnosis, he went, he went into sedation, not knowing he had cancer. And so I was making all of these calls on his behalf, not knowing if I was just torturing him and not knowing if he was going to survive. And so that responsibility compounded, but 
I think I also knew that he would have said, do whatever you can, you know, to, to keep me here. And, you know, we're fortunate enough to have had it work, but I know it doesn't for a lot of people. So again, I have to remind myself that we're just extremely lucky, you know, to be where we are. Yeah. When he was going through all the additional chemos and you're like, I was, I'm like, how is this, how can, how can he be okay? And you, you know, oh my gosh. And then I like went on such a deep dive and watched like every single thing that was ever posted on both of your Instagram accounts. Oh, yeah. oh my like, now I'm like a stalker basically after <laughs> I'm like, I want to see everything. How are they? And then the video that he posted with like some of those images, like especially the one like looking down at his legs, you know? Yeah. I just keep like replaying it. It's so sad, but it's amazing, but it's so sad. Because he lost, yeah, he lost 75 pounds. He was, and and I don't know if that, to to an athlete who is already very, like has 2% body fat, he went down to 95 pounds and he's six foot one. And you know, just the mere fact that he continued moving when he was that skinny, I think it really just attributes to his, he's just such an incredible human. And that's, I mean, he wouldn't say that's why he's here. He hates the hero narrative. You know, he doesn't, he says that it's all the doctors, it's all the community that saved him. But I was there, I watched him fight, you know, day after day. And yeah, I see both sides of it, but... And the way you talked about the doctors too was so moving. Yeah. How they really took a personal, like vested interest in him and tried everything. I mean, that is so important. Yeah, yeah. And I don't even think I did that. reading it back. I wish I had gone into more detail about just what they did. They really put their reputations on the line. The so many of their colleagues were telling them, "Don't accept this patient right now. He's going to die, and then that's on your hands." And it's the middle of the pandemic. Why would you take this patient? And they, there was two in particular that just said, you know, if anyone could do it, it's him and we want to give him a chance. And I actually met one of the doctors again at one of my book events in Phoenix, he showed up and, and a few, actually a few of the people from my book that I had written about showed up without me knowing that they were going to be there. And they met Rivs awake for the first time, which was surreal itself. You know, some of the nurses that had cared for him never got to see him awake, which is kind of, you know, strange. And it was just emotional. They're really superheroes for sure. (laughs) You also take us through a lot of your own coming of age, if you will. And you mentioned, you mentioned your tattoos in the book, but then I was like, oh, really a lot of tattoos here, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Well, I didn't have that many. When I went to BYU, you know, I went to the Mormon LDS school. I only had a few visible tattoos at that time. So I was kind of easier to to hide them. I don't know if they would have accepted me with these hand <laughs> finger tattoos. <laughs> so wait, so tell me about the tattoo journey and when, when did you get them all? And what's the story there? I started, so I got my first tattoo when I was 15, actually, I was visiting my sister in California and I, there was this little tent with these tattoos, this guy with a tattoo gun, he was like $20 tattoos. And I was like, sure. So that was my first tattoo. And then, um, I got several more after my father passed away. I think it was my way of kind of having some kind of catharsis and some kind of pain being a little bit constructive. At least it was art, you know, I think. And then I tried to kind of go back into, I tried to go back to Mormonism for a few years. So I stopped getting tattoos after I met my husband, after we got married, I tried to be, you know, a good obedient (laughs) member of the church for a while. And then I realized again, that didn't resonate with me. And so then I started to get tattoos. And what the first one that I actually got in my adult years was a quote from my dad that he wrote me a letter before he passed away. 
And so I have that, a couple of his hand, I noticed his actual handwriting quotes on me. And and now my new thing is I'm just getting jokes tattooed on me. So I have like inside jokes from my friends and I'm just kind of putting the script between the, the images. So once you have this money, it doesn't really matter what you get anymore. No, it's just like, you might as well. It's like a blackboard. Just yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like an outdated reference, I guess. There <laughs> wow. So you've shared so profoundly your whole life story, your love for your husband, like the intimacy of your relationship, your love for your girls. It becomes a bestseller, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, now, where do you go from here? Like, where is happily ever after? Is there such a thing? Like, how do yeah. you... How do you just like take out the garbage and move on with the day-to-day stuff? Well, that's what I'm asking myself now. Okay. So you reach that you have this lifelong goal, which for me was writing a memoir and having it reach the New York Times bestseller list. That's always been the pinnacle, you know, of my career and I did it. So now what? Is it all downhill from here? I don't know. I think it, I think this happened at the perfect time in my life because I feel as though the rest of my life hasn't changed and it's going to continue to remain the same. Like I'm still just a mom. I have my kids home for the summer. We're running around and, and, you know, I, I, I'm glad that my life hasn't changed other than, you know, the podcasts and the interviews. And I think had the book come out a few years ago, I might've been more susceptible to either, you know, the criticism or the, the praise of it. And it might've changed the way I see myself, but I feel like, you know, I'm still me. I'm still awkward and weird and mom and wife and but what I would love to do is I I really want to write a a novel Mm -hmm. I feel I feel like I've done enough of the memoir I people know way too much about my life um (laughs) the intimate details of my mind and I would love I would I'm trying to have actually written several chapters of taking a character from my memoir and then creating a story around this particular character And so that's, that's what, so it would stay within the whole, you know, probably like medical kind of realm because that's what is close to my heart now and trying to humanize, I think the medical staff, but in a fiction in fictitious way. Wow. Sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. I tried that by the way. I wrote a memoir. It was my, it came out and then I was like, oh, but I've been working for 20 years to do that. Like now what's my next goal? (laughs) Anyway, and well, I wrote a novel. Store. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a different, it's felt very, very different to me, um, mm-hmm. this type of writing and mm. far less, I mean, obviously it's far less personal, but yeah, if people don't like it, it's not going to be the same as people mm-hmm. like a memoir, which is basically like, like, you know, here is my lifeblood on this page. That means you don't like me. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I do know what you mean. Believe me, every, you know, I, the night before my book came out, I had this kind of purge. I was like crying and laughing. And I, I think I realized for the first time that people were going to have an opinion on not only my writing, which, you know, is subjective, but on my life and about the decisions I had made and the way that I had dealt with difficult things. And it's a really terrifying thing to put yourself out there like that. And then you have no control over the way that people receive it. So yeah, I don't know if I'm going to do it again, but (laughs) (laughs) well, if there's anything I can do to help like spread the word, if you want to come do an event at my bookstore, you want to teach a class, there's a big classes on memoir writing or writing your way through trauma. I I don't know. Just 
let me know. Open door. I love that. Yeah. No, thank you. Are you in LA? You're not in LA, but your bookstore opened in LA. Is that right? I'm in LA now. Um, if I will be when this comes out, but I, over the summer, I can spend a couple of weeks out here, but I have my kids. And so when they're with their income, but I'm here in and out, but yeah, my bookstore is here. Oh, cool. That's so cool. I'm going to stop by. I'm going to be out there in a couple of weeks for another podcast. So maybe I'll come. It's open, right? The books. Yeah. Okay, cool. We can talk after, but yeah, we can, you can do even an, an, even just a signing of stuff. You don't want to do a whole event, but um, I would love that. Thank you. Well, thank you again. This book, I mean, as a reading experience is everything I personally look for where you think you feel you connect, you cry, you laugh. I mean, it's just like, it was so good as a, as an actual, just the book journey itself. And then like the feeling that I had towards you, you know, after you finish, it's like, Oh, (laughs) anyway. Thank you. Thank you so much. That really is truly, I'm honored. Thank you. Well, enjoy the summer running around with the kids and all the rest. And um, yeah, good luck with the, with the novel. Thank you. All right. We'll see you. So nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.